hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Manuela Adrioni, climate reporter at The New York Times. A few weeks ago, Manuela and several colleagues published a fascinating and disturbing piece in The Times on illegal mining in the Brazilian Amazon. In today's conversation, Manuela will help us understand why wildcat mining has proliferated in recent years, how the mining is affecting the local environment and indigenous people, and how these mine materials may be ending up in the products that we use every day. Stay with us. Manuela Adrioni, welcome to Resources Radio. Hi, thank you for having me. Very glad to be here. Manuela, we're going to talk today about a fascinating article that you published in the New York Times uh, a few weeks ago. And um, the article documented illegal mining operations in the Brazilian Amazon. It's a fascinating piece of work. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners have already seen it. Uh, but before we talk about that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place, whether you've been interested in this stuff your whole life or whether you've come to it more recently. So what's sort of steered you into working on this topic or other you know, mining or natural resource topics? Yeah, um, I've always uh, been kind of a general interest type person, um, but I fell in love uh, with uh, reporting on the environment uh, because as a reporter in Brazil, uh, the Amazon reporting has become a bigger and bigger issue. You know, the destruction of the Amazon has become such a huge part of what we talk about. And, you know, I grew up in in Rio, where I live right now. And here we are surrounded by forests and hills. Um, And, you know, I I grew up having a lot of contact with nature, doing hikes um, and seeing, you know, like how much our tropical forest, our rainforest was destroyed. Um, So when I started reporting about the Amazon, you know, looking at that forest that still feels so mighty, um, and so um, and so rich and so intact. Uh, I just fell in love with you know telling stories about it and 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 just calling attention to its importance and how it's being destroyed. Um, so yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah, that's great. And and how about this particular article? What sort of drew your attention to illegal mining in the Amazon and? You know, how did you end up working on it? I think you also worked with a, a partnership called the Rainforest Investigations Network. Can you tell us a little bit about how the origins of this story came about? Yeah. Um, so in 2021, I joined the Rainforest Investigations Network, which is a reporting project the Pulitzer Center put together uh, that has people from several countries um, uh, that have rainforests. Uh, and this reporter who also joined uh, from Brazil, Yuri Pote. Um, uh, he had this project uh, to investigate uh, airships connected to mining. He um, had been reporting about uh, illegal mining for many years uh, here in Brazil. And uh, and I just looked at his project and I asked, you know, can we collaborate? Because I, I love it. I think, um, you know, it's such an important issue and so hard to look at it through a different lens. And yeah, that's how, you know, he, he, he said yes. And, and that's how we started working together on it. Um, yeah. 
That's really interesting. Um, you mentioned airstrips and mining. Uh, can you help our listeners understand, for those who haven't read the article, what's the connection? Uh, why, why is there a connection between airstrips and the Amazon and mining? Yeah, of course. So mining in in the Amazon, it happens uh, a lot of the time in these really remote corners of the forest. Uh, it's typically done on riverbeds uh, in in you know in, and often in protected lands and indigenous lands that are very hard to get to. Uh, we're talking about places that don't have roads and that you know though they have rivers, going there uh, by boat can take several days. Uh, or not be possible at all because of waterfalls and so on. So the only way to get to these places in a, an efficient manner is to fly. And because of this restriction, um, you know, it, it, if we think about it, it was supposed to be a deterrent, right? Like, you know, if it's so hard to get there, um, it shouldn't be so widely done. But what we found is that's not no deterrent at all. In fact, it's more of an obstacle to police mining than it is to for miners to work. Uh, because uh, while miners have dozens, hundreds of planes at their disposal, the federal police in Brazil only has one, one helicopter <laughs> that can take troops to, uh, to the forest. Um, so we saw like there's this huge problem. Okay, there tens of thousands of miners in these remote corners of the forest that are sometimes inhabited by indigenous people that live in relative isolation, that can't speak Portuguese, uh, that don't have a lot of knowledge about how a society works. Um, and, and, you know, there are thousands of them and prosecutors and law enforcement are like, we can't arrest 10,000, 30,000 people in the middle of the forest. Like, how do we even, how do we even, you know, get them to jail? <laughs> so, so, you know, what law enforcement would like to do is just block them from getting there, right? If you block the planes, you block their food supply, you block their, their supply to fuel, you block their supply to workers. Um, so it's a really, uh, smart way to tackle this immense problem. And that's why we thought it was a really good idea to just show this connection and show the missed opportunities really to, to deal with this problem. Yeah. Really interesting. And I, and I want to come back to that, that issue of, of public policies, uh, in, in a few minutes, but first I'd love to ask you a, a few questions about the actual mining process itself and some of its environmental consequences. Um, so first, just a very basic question, like, what are people mining for? What are they looking for? And when they mine the materials, um, where are they ending up? What are the markets for the mined materials? Okay, so um, so first they're mining, uh, they're mining for lots of things, but uh, mainly they're mining for gold and tin ore, uh, which is used to make electronic equipment. Um, so... Because the price of gold has has uh, has grown a lot uh, in recent years, especially like as the economy becomes less stable, you know, people uh, rush to get gold because that's never going to get old. So they're mainly looking for gold, which they find in most cases um, they find mixed with the sand um, in riverbeds, and then once they extract that much of that sand, what's left underneath often is tin ore mixed with other stuff. So, you know, they start off as gold mines, but then they become 
tenor mining. Um, and, you know, it only it's only possible because tenor is so valuable right now because it's really ridiculously heavy. You, like you take a little tiny bag of it and weighs a, a ton, you know, like it's super, it's super heavy. Uh, so you can imagine like flying with a very like a 1970s plane full of that, of that stuff uh, is super dangerous. So it needs to be really valuable for it to be worth it. So they're basically mining for uh, for these two things, um, and uh, mostly on the rivers, which means that you know sometimes they have to divert the course of the river and they destroy you know the the ecosystem around it. But one of the, one of the biggest problems, especially with uh, with with gold, is that they get these diesel pumps and they pump strong streams of water on the mud to loosen it. And then they extract that mud with another pump. And then that, what, where they're going to get is mud mixed with gold. Later on, they're going to get this mud and they're going to put mercury in it, in it because then the particles of gold are going to connect uh, with the mercury. Um, and then they're going to burn that mercury. And that's where the biggest environmental problem uh, is really because both the mercury that they discard accidentally and the mercury that evaporates and later falls as rain goes to the rivers uh, and then is eaten by fish. Um, and then people eat this fish um, and they get intoxicated with, uh, with mercury that can cause uh, like so many problems. I can't even list them all, but it affects fetal development. It, it makes people blind. Um, it gives you cardiovascular problems. It is, it's just a vast array of things. Um, and it just doesn't go away because it's an element. So it's going to be there for hundreds of years. Um, it doesn't, uh, it, you can't get rid of it. Uh, so the more you pump in, it's just going to stay there. Uh, so that's, you know, that's the main concern there um, in terms of health. Right. And you document in the story some pretty shockingly high levels of mercury in, you know, local water supplies. Can you tell us a little bit about those levels? Yeah. So in this one, uh, I think it was five rivers. The federal police just did this analysis of uh, water and in, in, in five rivers in the Yanomami indigenous land and found um, and found levels of mercury 8,600% above acceptable levels of for human consumption. Um, and, you know, there hasn't been a lot of research about this that is, is very recent, but research from like six years ago uh, in villages uh, in the Anamami indigenous land found that uh, like over 90% of people living in those villages uh, had high concentration of mercury in their blood. Um, that is also true in other indigenous lands in, in, in Brazil, like the Munduruku indigenous land, where the Tapajós River that goes through there, police did a similar analysis and found that, you know, uh, it was like a dam of, a huge dam of mining. I don't know if you remember that Vali had, uh, there was a big dam break here that killed hundreds of people. Uh, they they mine for tenor, but it was the police found that it was like that dam was breaking that river in the middle of the Amazon, like once every five or ten years. The the sediment from illegal mining was so large. So this is not only affecting this river in the Anomami land; is affecting several different rivers um, in 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 the Amazon and 
making um, thousands of indigenous people who live close to these mines very sick. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about the public policy angle in, in just one more second. But first, kind of a, a markets question. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where ultimately these products, these you know tin and gold products are being consumed and whether there's a potential role for uh, purchasers of these products to exert pressure uh, or you know look more closely into their supply chains to try to lessen this environmental um, you know what sounds like a you know uh, certainly an extreme environmental degradation? Yeah, um, so we, what we know is very disturbing, but we know very little about what happens to this uh, gold and tenor. So we know that for gold, uh, that it goes to jewelry stores, um, it goes to tech companies uh, and banks. Um, tech companies are a minority of the, um, of the buyers, but because they're more transparent, given uh, that they have to report uh, to the SEC uh, where they're buying their minerals, uh, we know a lot more about uh, where where they're buying their gold from. So we know that, for example, there are refiners uh, from other stories that were uh, Reuters stories and Associated Press stories that were published recently um, that gold from indigenous lands in Brazil has gone through to Tesla's to Google phones, Starbucks coffee machines, through like these super complicated supply chains uh, that have like several steps. Uh, We know this because they report uh, which refiners, smelters, they are buying their gold from. And we know from police investigations um, and some corporate documents where these smelters are buying gold from. Now for tin ore, we know very little about it. I mean, my sources in law enforcement say that there are tech companies uh, um, outside Brazil that are buying this tenor, but I'm not, I, I just don't, I, I don't know yet. I'm very eager to find out, but I don't know, I don't know yet where it's going. And I think very importantly, uh, a lot of this gold, sorry, just going back to gold for a second, a lot of this gold, researchers believe that a lot of this gold goes to banks um, across the world, right? To just give our money value. And banks just don't tell us where they're buying this gold, right? If you think about, you know, the Fed or, um, or I don't know, like the bank of, you know, central banks around the world, they're getting gold from somewhere to put in their coffers to make their money be worth something. But we've known very little about where they're buying this gold from because they don't tell us um, what their suppliers are. And researchers told me that, you know, a huge amount of the gold that gets, uh, that that comes out of Brazil and other countries uh, is actually going to these banks. Uh, so it's a big unknown there. So there is, I think, a lot of opportunity for developed countries to pressure uh, banks and technology companies and jewel makers to just give us information about which smelters they're buying their gold from and to pressure the countries where these smelters are located to release information about where they're buying their gold from because you know you can't stop at the smelters they're not actually the ones that are deep in the forest mining for this gold and the documentation they're linking the two sometimes is just hundreds of pieces of paper 
they're not even, at least in Brazil, they're not even digitized. So you can imagine how hard it is for police and law enforcement to look through these and look for fraud, which is which abounds. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to improve um, how these things work. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, um, let's talk now about uh, sort of federal level policy in Brazil and how that might be contributing to the problem. You talk in the story about uh, President Bolsonaro of Brazil and how some of the policies his government has implemented seems to be kind of contributing to the proliferation of these wildcat or illegal mines. Can you talk about those policies? Yeah, so um, Bolsonaro, um, he always uh, spoke in favor of, of uh, wildcat miners. Um, and uh, that alone helps them out a lot, right? Because you got you've got a promise almost from the the highest ranking officer in the country saying we're not going to go after you. Um, and he has visited uh, an illegal mine in an indigenous land. So he is just saying, I'm on your side, right? Uh, he there were operations from the police that sought to uh, crack down on illegal mining where people who participated on these operations were then fired from their jobs. Uh, so the biggest policy is just uh, kind of boycotting um, law enforcement. Um, and then what you have is him trying to enact legislation um, to make mining and protected lands legal. Uh, the pressure to do that has increased a lot, but they haven't been able to do that yet. Um, so it's been more of a threat uh, than anything else. Um, so yeah, there. So there do two things: just weakening law enforcement, uh, and which is the biggest contribution to the growth of the illegal mining industry, and then trying to change legislation, which they haven't been successful uh, in doing. Mm -hmm. When it comes to that uh, piece of weakening law enforcement and weakening sort of regulatory enforcement, um, how reversible do you think those trends are if a new government were to take power that you know had more of an interest in uh, protecting these lands and, and reducing the environmental degradation? Uh, you talk a little bit in the article about how the miners will often make it impossible for other planes to land at their remote landing strips, which made me wonder, you know, if a new government came into power and really wanted to crack down on this stuff, uh, you know, how simple or straightforward would, would it be? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's possible, but it's going to take a lot of work because these institutions were dismantled. So you're going to have to hire a bunch of people. You're going to have to invest a bunch of money that the country doesn't have. Um, and you're going to have to uh, dismantle this increasingly organized criminal activities um, and in corners of the forest uh, that are more and more remote. So while it is possible, but it's going to take money and it's going to take a lot of work. Um, but, you know, it's been done in the past. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that uh, in the 80s, a similar gold rush sent tens of thousands of miners to these places in the Amazon to look for gold. 
Um, and then the government did a years-long operation to get them out. And then the military, uh, which right now isn't doing most, isn't doing much to to fight illegal mining, um, did a lot. You know, like they closed the airspace. Uh, they had planes with raiders looking for uh, illegal planes. So you know, there are resources uh, to there are some resources to do that. Um, and you know, I I think. Though it's gonna, it may be expensive. Political will along go a long way in getting Brazil to a better place. Um, of course, you know it's not very hard to be better than it is right now. Um, but uh, but you know, just political will will get it to a much better place than it is now. And then the government's gonna have to make it a priority and hire more people and put more money um, into into rebuilding these institutions uh, to make them work for, uh, to protect the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think of a sort of like political economy question, which is, you know, who are the um, interests that, uh, you know, really want to see this mining continue and how much power do they exert over political actors uh, in the Brazilian government, whether it's in the legislature or in the executive branch? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, not only with uh, illegal mining, but with all sorts of environmental crimes uh, happening in the Amazon, uh, there aren't that many economically powerful people on the environment side. Right. We haven't as a society, uh, you know, and I'm not just talking about Brazil, I'm talking about the world, really figured out how to make the standing forest be worth a lot of money. You know, we can make it worth a little money, uh, but a lot of money, you know, like money you can make selling gold. Um, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, and that's a really difficult problem to solve that I think. You know, uh, we 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 just don't have the answer for, it. and I don't see uh, I don't see that much work going into you know by governments going into making solutions scalable. Um, you know, a lot of uh, what Bolsonaro uh, supporters always uh, complain that you know everyone puts uh, uh, blames Bolsonaro for destroying the Amazon. It's not like that, you know, because it started way before that. And, you know, to some extent, they're right, because past governments were much better at protecting the forest, right? Like strengthening those law enforcement um, agencies and so on. But in terms of actually building up uh, an economy that isn't reliant on illegal activity like illegal mining, no one has been able to do that. Um, and so that, I think, the biggest problem, because... This means that people have money to do political campaigns in these places, sometimes very often are connected to these illegal activities, right? The, the, the guy in our story, the businessman uh, who's suspected of running a logistics operation um, uh, to support illegal mining in the Yanomami land is running a very expensive campaign for Congress. And, you know, he might be elected because there aren't a lot of people who have that kind of money there, you know, to run this campaign. So not having the economic pillars there for uh, to support uh, uh, a standing force really makes the the fight 
uh, a lot weaker because you just don't have very powerful people on the environment side. You don't have people making money uh, from a healthy environment. Um, and yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge problem. Yeah, that's a it's a great point, and I mean it is what actually one of the main reasons for RFF's existence, our our organization. I mean, we largely what we do is we try to understand the value to society of natural resources like forests uh, and and clean water and clean air. Um, of course, we don't have the political power of some of the other folks uh, that that you mentioned, but uh, this is such a fascinating conversation, Manuela. And, and I'd like to ask you just one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment. You've referred to the Yanomami communities several times in our conversation, and I was really fascinated by a couple points you make in the story about how some of these mining activities have actually led to division and conflict within some of those communities. Can you talk about those dynamics for a few minutes? Yeah, um, I think that's, in some ways, I think that's the saddest part. Uh, It, you, you know, like it's, you can imagine these miners coming from the city with cell phones and packaged foods and liquor, um, going into these communities that just live in a completely different world. Uh, that speak a different language, that have access to different technologies, let's say. Uh, so what happens often is that they stoke divisions by uh, giving packaged foods to indigenous people and telling them, hey, you don't need to grow food anymore, here you go. Um, and then, I mean, forcing women into prostitution, um, giving indigenous people access to the internet through their cell phones, which they wouldn't have uh, without the miners, or giving them guns to solve problems that they would have solved in some other way um, if they didn't have um, uh, guns. So this has uh, really destroyed the soul um, of some communities. We focus on one mine uh, in our story, uh, showing all the illegal airships and how mining has grown there. And there was, uh, a few months ago, uh, an episode where indigenous people that had guns supplied by miners um, attacked another community that was against the miners, and people died. Um, So... You're destroying the social fabric um, that holds these people together. Um, And this is something that's going to be very hard to get back. Um, And I think it's the is the saddest uh, part of it all. David Kopanawa, who's an indigenous leader in the Yanomami land, has actually written a book called The Falling Sky, uh, which is all about uh, the cosmovision of the Yanomami indigenous people, like how, you know, their beliefs and how, you know, they see nature and how white men, white people are coming to destroy it. It's actually quite, you know, the way he they put it in their culture is quite interesting. They say white people are digging up uh, the disease that the gods had buried called Shawada. Um, and, you know, in, in digging for gold, uh, they're digging out this big kind of monster type uh, creature uh, that is making the world sick. 
it's a big book, um, but I really recommend it to learn a little bit more about how indigenous people view uh, these issues and how much they can teach us about, you know, the value of our natural resources of nature um, and how we are really destroying that knowledge in destroying their communities. Um, and we really need it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's sort of heartbreaking and, and fascinating all at the same time. Um, wow, Manuela, so there are so many more questions I would love to ask you, uh, could could ask you about this work all day, but um, we're reaching the end of our time. So I'm going to ask you to recommend something uh, that you think our listeners might enjoy, something that might be at the top of your literal reading stack or your metaphorical reading stack. Um, and I'll give a really quick recommendation because we're talking about the Amazon today. The film that always comes to mind for me when I think about the Amazon is uh, this documentary called Burden of Dreams. Um, it's actually a documentary about the making of a film. The, that film is called Fitzcarraldo. Um, and the documentary is about the filmmaker Werner Herzog uh, trying to make uh, this movie in the middle of the Amazon. And one of the things they have to do in the movie is literally pull a boat over a mountain. Um, and it's bizarre and hilarious and kind of beautiful and weird all at once. Um, and it's really one of my favorite films. And it's got lots of wonderful uh, footage of, of beautiful places in the Amazon, including uh, some indigenous peoples. Um, I don't know what uh, affiliation they are, but um, but it's really a great film. Uh, but how about you, uh, Manuela? Can you recommend something that's at the top of your uh, stack for our listeners? Yeah, um, there's this um, there's this book. It's a very tiny book uh, called "Ideas to Postpone the End of the World," uh, which was written by Ailton Karenaki, who's an indigenous leader here. It's all about how the Western concept of humanity has created the environmental crisis and what uh, the indigenous way of living can teach us uh, to kind of tackle this crisis. Uh, it's a really, you know, it's a good book to have on your bedside sometimes. So I recommend that one. Thank you. Sounds fascinating. Well, one more time, Manuela Andreoni, thank you so much for joining us today, telling us about your fascinating work. Uh, thank you for coming out to Resources Radio. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast for resources for the future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.